Okay, I got 60 seconds. Welcome this evening, this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, there are no pressing announcements. We have the call to worship. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. If ye had been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. It's by our hearts and heads, it's not a preparation for worship. Let us rise and let us sing before our Lord and our Maker, Psalm 119b, 119b. indeed, God Almighty, for your law, for your word, for the ex- explanation and direction you've given us in the word of God, as we especially read through Corinthians, Lord, as Paul applies your law to the life of the churches of the city of Corinth, God, and therefore by extension to us, we too are under the same law, Lord. Help us to learn these things this evening in particular, God, even as we continue to praise you and thank you for our time in your presence. In your precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
Hymn 277, as we are seated, hymn 277.
heaven and earth and all that we see and do not see are holy indeed as you reign in heaven and in our lives. We are grateful, God, and ask and continue to pray for your mercies and your goodness, long-suffering upon us. We think in particular, Lord, that those Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord that we may know, here and elsewhere, God, who are in the military, who are in the medical field, who are in the police field, difficult jobs that they encounter, God, difficult times and hours. And, Lord, we ask that you would be with them in special regards. Think of Simon and Tolly, Lord, uh, that they would continue to have access to your word, uh, to a good church, to faithful ministers or chaplains in their case, God. We think of others who are across the world and overseas in difficult situations. Uh, God, may they be comforted. May they be able to have access to technology so they can still communicate with their family and with the church, Lord, and with good counsel. And so, God, we're thankful for the witness for their protection, both body and soul. We lift up our, our lives, God, as we are before you, that we would continue to have the moisture and the rain that we need in the semi-arid land, God, for the crops, for drinking water, for our yards. And we ask, God, that we would also, as your people, be good stewards of the things that you've given us, of the time, of the talents, of the resources that we have, Lord, and that we would be wise with them, that we would use them properly and according to their proper function, Lord, in our life and to those who need them around us, our God and Savior. And we ask and pray, Lord, uh, that we would continue to be faithful with the things that you own that's ultimately yours, that you have given to us, entrusted to us, as it were, for a little time on this earth, that we would use them uh, for your glory, for the good of others around us, God Almighty. And so, God, we are grateful for the many things you've indeed given us and that we as your people would be humble in your sight. We would bow down and we would accept our responsibility and with grateful hearts, Lord, and give us, we pray, continued wisdom and understanding of best how to use all the resources that you've given us at our disposal. And may we multiply and use them, Lord, as in the parable of the talents. Our God and Savior, we pray for our church and for the different situations we find ourselves in with respect to age and with respect to economic or socioeconomic positions, God, that we find ourselves in your providence. We think of the, the young and the old alike and everyone in between in our churches and here at Providence, 
uh, that uh, they would continue to get along in a proper accordance to what you've given us in our hearts, God, that the young and the youth, Lord, would uh, submit to the leadership of the aged and the elders around them, God, leadership both by example and by instruction, and of course, formally with respect to the church or their parents, our God and Savior, and at the same time that they would be zealous to use their strength and creativity for the good of the church, for the advancement of your kingdom, and for, uh, Lord, the assistance of their superiors. And we pray, God, for those who have the age, who have the experience, who have the instruction in their life, Lord, that they would be uh, wise and humble and use them for the young and uh, those who need such instruction and wisdom, even if they're not young in years. And our God and Savior, that they would be humble to accept such things. At the same time, God, that we would be humble ourselves, Lord, and look for and use the strength of the youth and others around us, God, for the good of your kingdom, for one another, God, that we are in it together in the body of Christ and given different gifts and abilities in your providence and your special dispensation as we are members of your church. And, Lord, we pray the same for the rich and poor alike, uh, that we would assist those in need. Uh, those, Lord, uh, who, according to your word, are proper recipients of help. And so, Lord, we pray also for those who need such help, God, uh, that they would continue to do what needs to be done, and they would, Lord, continue to feel the love of Christ Jesus upon them. We are thankful, God, that in spite of all the differences that we have and abilities and riches and everything in between, Lord, that we would continue to look to one another as brothers and sisters, yes, fathers and mothers in the Church of Christ. And we lift up our Christian education, our efforts, Lord, to learn more of your word, uh, to grow an understanding of who you are, especially, God, in a society in which we hear very little, often the opposite of holiness and righteousness throughout the week in the media and perhaps the news around us, Lord, our neighbors and the like, co-workers. And so, Lord, we hear very little, and so we have to do what we can to instruct ourselves throughout the week and be thankful that we have access to your word, especially on Sunday. Our God, we pray for our children in particular. We think of them, that they would learn all that they need to learn to be good citizens, uh, to be good citizens not only of this world, of this country, of this state, the community we find ourselves in, but of your kingdom, wherever that may take them in their life. And so, God Almighty, precious spirit of truth and illumination, and be upon our covenant children and the youth, especially, God, that you would strengthen them and give them wisdom to uh, pursue what they are called in their life, and to move forward and to be helpful and useful in your kingdom, God Almighty. We ask these things for your glorious name's sake, that your name may be magnified in all that we do. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We 
indeed magnify and praise you, God Almighty. Again, grateful for the many blessings you bestow upon us, and we ask, God, that you would bless us further, those who have given of their tithes and offerings, God, so that we can be more useful in your kingdom and for our families and those close to us, that your name may be glorified in all that we do. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing to our book, 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 1 through 18. 1 Corinthians 9 verses 1 through 18. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do others apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? Those who serve at the altar partake of the offering of the altar. Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that I should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, but necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, for I do not For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Let us pray. So, Lord, we see here through the pen of Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, to give the instruction to the church Churches of Corinth, Lord, of these matters of him being an apostle and the authority and the responsibility and the privileges, God, that he has and how he laid aside the privilege of being paid and compensated for his ministry. He did that, Lord, not out of pride, but out of strong desire, Lord, that others would not stumble. Help us, God, in that regards to learn and to be encouraged from this, Lord, to put aside at times our rights, uh, when needful, Lord, for the greater good. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So here we have 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul going into yet another different topic for the churches there. Uh, I can imagine his audience being wide and varied and not every topic relevant to every member of the audience. Just like when I preach to you. 
Some things are like, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And other ones are like, why is that? Why? I'm not a pastor or whatever. And that's understandable. And the same is the case probably here as well. But it shows us the breadth and the depth of issues dealt with at the Presbytery of Corinth. Following on the heels of his prior argument about his using Christian liberty, or they using Christian liberty, right, chapter 8, in a responsible manner, there are times in which you put it aside so that you would not stumble your weaker brother. Paul applies the same principle to his own office as an apostle. He spends his entire chapter on this point by first asserting his office as apostle, presumably because it was questioned by the Corinthians. You see how he makes a point of this in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verse 3, I have a defense against those who examine me, like he was in the law court. Then he backs up this up in a line of reasoning to defend the claim of the apostles, like everyone else in life, notice the arguments, we'll look into those analogies, have a right to the fruit of their labors. They should get paid. And then he explains that he declined that right in order to avoid unnecessary offense, since his greater purpose is to preach without restrictions. To that end, he spends the remaining verses, 19 to 27, to explain his ministry and his dealing of differences and avoiding unnecessary offenses. And that would be another sermon when we get to 19. For this section here, we will cover verses 1 through 18. And so the first point, the apostolic office asserted, verses 1 and 2. Am I not an apostle? Obviously the answer is yes, he is. Am I not free? Yes, yes he is. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Indeed he has. This is why, one reason why, not the only, he has to be commissioned by Christ as well, for many saw Christ, but he saw Christ. And are you not my work in the Lord? Yeah, he helped establish the churches of Corinth. Right out of the gate, he gives more questions, more rhetorical questions, but questions about his apostleship in this particular case, and a freedom. But a freedom for what? Am I not free? He throws in there the second question or slash assertion, as it were, in verse 1. Now, free, as we'll see in the next few verses, next section especially, free to say no. But it's left hanging right here, so you're not quite sure until you read the rest of the verses. These rhetorical questions are indeed answered uh, by the audience. They know the answer to these things. Uh, it's a larger section, so let me summarize uh, these questions and the next uh, few questions as well. The immediate point, the right of the apostles for compensation. That's when he'll argue in verses 3 and following, the right of the apostles for compensation. Compensation or maintenance, as it's been traditionally called, cash payments, room and board, food. Uh, I think Dr. Coppice and I know other farmers in the old days would pay the pastors, here's, here's half a deer, here's half a cow. I wouldn't have a fridge big enough for that. <laughs> I guess I'd have to buy one. That's how they do it. However it was done, that's not his point. His point was they deserve Proper compensation for their job. He who works should get paid. That's the universal rule. Everyone knows this, except for lazy communists. Because they want someone else to pay them. But the broader point behind this immediate point that he argues here in verses 1 and 2 implicitly, then 3 and following more explicitly, is that he, yes, indeed, I have the right. Here's the, here's the evidence. Here's my argument for the right. He gives several different types of arguments. Yet I also have, on the flip side, the right not to receive payment. You've heard of businesses saying we have the right to refuse service, your service, you coming to me and us serving you under certain conditions. No shoes, no service. I don't know if they even do that anymore. <laughs> it's just it's 
crazy wild west out there. Well, he's saying, I, I have the right to refuse payment. Verse 12, he says, we have not used this right. Verse 18, I may present the gospel without charge, without recompense, or free of charge, as one translation uh, is. And then um, he says, verse 15, but I've used none of these things, none of these reasons to this end. So he says three times, in three different ways, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take recompense for my job and my uh, work among you. So everything revolves in these verses, and then to the end of chapter 9, for that matter, of this point, I won't take them, and I don't have to take them, and I shouldn't be looked down upon for not taking them. I mean, why would he spend all this ink if that wasn't an issue? The apostolic compensation asserted, verses 3 through 14, the second point. The first argument, uh, or first set of arguments, uh, I think I kind of roughly made four or five rounds of arguments. Yeah, last argument, about five collections of arguments, as it were, here to make it a little easier for us to digest. The first uh, argument, these questions he asked, verses 3 to 7, my defense of those who examine me, right? Uh, That is, those who are coming at him as though it was a law court matter. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working and the like? Uh, So, for when the conclusion is obvious, you ask rhetorical question. You don't ask it because you're interested in information, but you ask it to make a point, a strong point, an emphatic point. He does this a lot here, and he did it before in the prior chapters, if you recall. Apparently one of his favorite, what they call in the old days, rhetorical devices, a method of getting your attention, of, of making an argument, as it were. It doesn't always have to be strictly logical, uh, but it can be emphatic or even emotional. And traditionally, the best orators, and we have the tradition of oratory, uh, oration, speaking and preaching, which comes out of that, from our Greek forefathers. And I speak historically as Western civilization. And one of the things I taught wasn't just you can win and sway people by rational argumentation, major premise, minor premise, conclusion, but how you ornate and put or- ornaments upon it and grab people's imagination and emotions as well as the truth. It's best to have both, if possible. So here he comes along, Paul does, and I'm going to go through verses 4 through 7 here. Verse 4, we have a right to eat. These are the answers. Verse 5, right? do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? We have a right to take along a believing wife. Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And the answer is uh, no. Uh, it's... You, you, he says it backwards here. Barnabas and I have no right. No, we do have a right. So he's being kind of cheeky there. Of course they do. We're, we're the only special apostles. So by implication, the other apostles, and you see this elsewhere in these verses, uh, him talking about them indirectly, that they treated them different than Paul and the Bar- Barnabas, apparently. We shouldn't be any different, he's saying. Uh, verses 7 and following, he says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, that's the imagery of a soldier, not hey, you know, I'm being invaded in my home and my community gets together, and of course it's my own expense. He's talking about a soldier. Even today, soldiers don't go to war at their own expense. The military provides their weapons and their clothing and their gear and their equipment. That's what he's talking about. Uh, and then verse 7 again, 
I don't know why they divide these things this way by verses. It drives me nuts, but here we are. Verse 7b, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit. Nobody. I mean, you plant your garden. I grew up with a little garden. I was talking to my dad about it one time, remember? In the backyard in the house in Westminster off of Moore Street. The house is still there if you want to go check it out. Remember the little garden, snap peas? I ate peas in the pod. I didn't take the peas out. I ate the peas in the pod themselves. They were that good. You know how picky I am. And the carrots and other things. It's good stuff. I'm going to eat it. Paul's saying, of course you do. Who tends the flock and does not drink of the milk? Nobody. You have the sheep. You have the goat. You're going to eat and drink of the bounties of your efforts. And that he has to have so many questions saying the same thing from different walks of life tells you this is a serious problem at the place. They weren't getting the point. He had to hammer it into their heads. <laughs> Hello? Hello? How's that go? McFly? All this to say the apostles should get recompense for their work. Amongst other things, other other matters came up apparently. Do we not have a right to take a believing wife? Why, why did that come up? But apparently it did. And the first one, of course, verse 4, was... Cheeky as well, I would argue. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Are we just going to die? <laughs> right? That's the implication. If not, I'm just going to die. i got to eat. i got to drink. Soldiers and farmers and shepherds get to eat the fruit of their labor. They get recompense for what they do. It's from their own hands. And so do the apostles. In other words, his arguments are from verses 4 to 7, this is common sense. This is natural law. I don't even need a Bible to know this fact. It's not like I had to go to 1 Corinthians 9 and look at how Paul reasoned this way. What did Paul do but look to natural revelation? Just looked around there, hello? Of course. And so he uses these arguments. He uses arguments by analogy. The apostles are like soldiers. The apostles are like shepherds. The apostles uh, and the like here, um, farmers, and therefore, we too, as a reminder, can use arguments by analogy. And we do, and ought to, when appropriate. The second set of arguments, verses 8 through 10, so the first part is mostly arguments by analogy. The second set of arguments, verses 8 through 10, is the argument from the Mosaic case law. Case law in the Old Testament is a specific term with respect to if this happens and that happens, if the ox gores you, then you ought to have proper recompense. If there's murder, you ought to execute the murderer. If you steal, these kind of things. All those laws, they give different cases, right? matters and scenarios and circumstances that come up in the Old Testament. That's different than the ceremonial law. That's specifically about the public formal worship of God and the priest in the temple. And then, of course, the moral law, which is above all those other laws. So this is the case law here, verse 8 through 10, where Paul drills into the Old Testament and argues from what we call a logic from the lesser to the greater, or a fortiori. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, right? They would tie up the ox uh, to their wooden device so that it would walk through, I think with a device as well, and tread out the grain to break up the husk and get to the kernel part around it. You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, right? Put a device over its mouth so they can't reach down and eat from its labors, the very things that it's crushing. Is it oxen God is concerned about? There's another one of those questions, rhetorical questions. And obviously, it's not like God's like, a, he's just sweating bullets about those ox. 
Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sakes, Paul argues. If God is concerned, another way of saying, if God's concerned about this dumb animal, dumb ox, how much more is he concerned about you? All the more. Of course, that makes no sense in a society that doesn't value human life and actually thinks dogs and cats and animals are more important than babies. This kind of reasoning makes no sense to them. They've thrown out their natural way of thinking out the window, unfortunately. But we know better. And Paul's not arguing to them. He's arguing to Christians, avowed Christians, and arguing, and therefore, by example for us. God gave a law for animals, and he's not only or merely is the implied modifier here, right? Is God concerned about oxen? Well, obviously he is insofar as he made a law for it. What he's saying is he merely concerned or only concerned about oxen. And the answer is no. A thousand times, no. (laughs) And so, again, apparently his readers are very stubborn and very confused on this point. They need to learn this. They have to pay. You have to fess up. And I don't think it's a special problem uh, in our presbytery, necessarily, or our collection of churches. But I know in the past it has been a problem. Some churches have heard stories from ministers that were struggling because apparently their church didn't think they needed more money when they did. Right? They probably needed to hear a sermon like this. What happens, I don't know of the churches in particular, I assume the best in this way, that they don't quite get that the pastor's situation is not their situation. I'm a farmer, I do this, I do that, I do X, Y, Z. And so they expect apparently the same thing for their pastor. Um, and it may not be the case depending on where he lives or whatever the circumstances are. Uh, but we have in the OPC, for example, so I'm applying this text to where we are today, right? Feed the pastor, he's your ox. <laughs> uh, we have a suggested pricing list. It's just across the nation trip. It's just a flat, although different rates of living are different in every part of the Denver rates are a lot different than North Dakota rates. Um, so, But that's a helpful way to what? I would argue to fill this passage, to give you a rule of thumb that you give proper honor and recompense to your pastor or to your leaders uh, in general. And so Paul's hammering the point home over and over again with his stubborn audience. Verse 11, third round of questions, more questions. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap you your material things? An answer, of course, is it's not a great thing to be rewarded for sowing for spiritual seeds because the implication here is he's switching from the spiritual to the material, although they are parallel, as it were, in real life. You do spiritual things as well as physical things at the same time. But the spiritual preaching and the spiritual effort is a great effort indeed to save souls by the power of the gospel. Is an amazing and wonderful and high goal and work. That is the preaching of the gospel. I speak as a man, of course, it's not me that saves, but God saving through my preaching and my efforts, our efforts as ministers. If I have sown spiritual things for you, which is what? You're born again. You're a new church. You were unbelievers before. The fruit of the Spirit. Is it a great thing? If we reap your material things, and he's saying it's not a great thing because material things, I think of the implied argument here, is a lesser concern than spiritual, relatively speaking. And so if I'm going to reap spiritual blessings, how much more should I reap material blessings? You see that? And so, in other words, 
ministers ought to be paid or evangelists or apostles in this place rewarded one way or the other with material fruit from their spiritual ministry. A fourth argument, if others are partakers of this right overview, are we not even more? That's verse 12. So he's dealing with another matter, it seems, that others are partakers of this right overview. Others, presumably other pastors, are being paid or given recompense or something along those lines. He's like, if they can do it, why can't we? Why? What's different about us? And what it seems to be in his case is they're questioning his apostleship. This comes up in a little later after these verses. And, of course, in verse 1, I would argue, am I not an apostle, he says. Why did he bring that up? Because there's multiple problems being dealt with through these verses. But the main one, of course, is recompense or proper um, compensation for labors employed. So, so even the Apostle Paul, brothers and sisters, had problems. People who questioned him and would not pay him, apparently, or begrudgingly paid him. So the same problems happen today as they happened during the time of Paul. Now, verse 12 and following, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So there he is again, and in verse 15 and in verse 18, saying, this is true, but I'm not going to assert my rights in this matter. He and Barnabas did not insist upon payment. In fact, we know Paul did what for payment? Remember? He was a tent maker. Acts 18, 2 and following. Now, the question then becomes, is this for today? And should all pastors be bivocational, is the phrase we would use today. Two jobs, preaching and it's something on the job to make up for the lack of payment while he's a preacher. We have a gentleman in uh, North Dakota who does that, Pastor Christopher Drew. He does that out of necessity because it's a small congregation and uh, funds are short, and so he has two jobs. Paul does it out of a different kind of necessity. We'll talk a little bit about that as we wind down on the sermon here. Uh, but I want to point out here, it's an, an unusual historic circumstances, which is this. It is a new religion, relatively speaking. Right? We know it's the same religion with respect to it's the same Jesus, it's the same Lord. It's the same justification. You are justified, declared righteous on account of the perfection of Christ Jesus, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But it's new insofar as it's now radically changed from the uh, Jewish skin or the husk that it wore, the clothing that it wore, to now an international church. Right? So those things have changed. And that made a difference because eventually the Jews wanted nothing to do with us, although we were the perfection of their religion, or the maturation, perhaps a better word of their religion. What their religion always pointed to in the Old Testament was Christ and its fulfillment in the New Testament. Go read Hebrews, right? And so, because of that radical change, uh, Paul and others went to extraordinary lengths to deal with Timothy and others. Titus he talked about, one he circumcised, the other he didn't. So he would not offend the Jews he wished to bring into this ushering of the New Testament age. And so you had a lot of suspicion about people, 1,800 years, right? Abraham, about 1,800 B.C., uh, having radical change in their religion. They don't want to change. The Jewish church eventually was separated from the Christian church. As you know, we met in synagogues early on. That is, the Jewish churches. 
for many years. So they got tired of us and threw us out. So during this transition, Paul went to extraordinary lengths to not be, be offensive to them. At the same time, he did just throw up his hands and say, I'm tired of you guys at the end of Acts, right? <laughs> that, that's it. I'm going to the Gentiles. They're going to hear me. He did have a limit to his patience and his compassion, as we all should, and follow such an example. And so this is a change. And so ordinarily, ministers under normal times should get proper compensation. He just argued this over and over and over again, verses 3 to 14. But he's making an exception for himself only insofar as the circumstances dictated it. And the circumstances we don't know exactly, again, we have to infer from the text, seems to be, perhaps, uh, that they thought he was... um, mercenary in his intent, that is, lover of money. Mercenaries shoot, kill people for money. That's that's how it is. And he's not just preaching for money. That's why he says at the end, I may present the gospel to Christ without charge, that is, without payment, free of charge, that I may not abuse my authority, that is, it may not be perceived by the Jewish audience, maybe even Christians in particular, to be offensive to them. So I don't think he's concerned. I can see this being abused today, of course, in our circles. People being concerned about, uh, you know, progressives who hate us and the, oh, you, you just, you're not really preaching a real gospel. You just want the money and blah, blah, blah. And the church to say, whatever, we're not going to listen to you. We don't want that kind of peer pressure. That's not what he's concerned about in chapter eight, is it? Chapter eight, it's brothers in the Lord I don't want to offend. Presumably in nine, he's doing the same thing about brothers in the Lord who are offended or confused about why he's getting money. He's like, no, I'm preaching because I have a, commission. And I love the Lord, and it's not about the money. And so ordinarily they should exercise that right and get paid. The last argument, the Mosaic Ceremonial Law, verses 13 to 14. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offering of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. I think you can see there from the argument by analogy that he is saying that ministers, pastors, or by analogy similar to priests of the Old Testament, and the actions of the priests of the Old Testament, of the altar, of making of the altar, of the killing of the animal, of eating, they partook of some, depending on the sacrifice, they ate some of the sacrifices, uh, others they didn't, like the Ola sacrifice, the whole burnt offering, the whole thing was devoured by fire. And preaching the gospel is a similar activity. That's that's the only way the analogy makes sense. Not that I am a priest, but like a priest, like your ass, right? Uh, I have a holy duty and responsibility. Ministers do, apostles do, evangelists do. And they got compensated by eating the animal from the altar. They got, that's how they got their food. Brought the sacrifice, and most sacrifices they could eat. Free beef, free food, all right. And he's saying, I, we have the same thing today. Nothing's changed. Whether you look at the case law, whether you look at the ceremonial law, Paul's saying, it's the same, brothers and sisters. They should get proper compensation. Even so, the Lord commanded those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel, not live in the sense of spiritual living. Uh, we all have the Holy Spirit. We need that living. He means food, water, compensation, payment, something, so I can live, live a human life with my body. Churches should materially support their ministers. And many have done, this is, such as our church, by God's grace, and continue to do thus. Now, another note I want to make before uh, I finish here, the last point, is it's okay to publicly defend yourself. 
Is that what Paul's doing? He's defending his actions, which is, I don't have to take payment, and I should be looked down upon for not taking payment. In fact, I could take payment if I want to. Here's a bunch of arguments. Why? Am I not an apostle who has this freedom? Verse 1, have I not seen the Lord? I have indeed. He's defending himself, his office, and his activities. And there's a time and place to do that. You wouldn't think he'd have to defend being an apostle. Good night. The man's in the pot. What's going on here? But he did. How much more is it may happen to us that we would have to defend ourselves with a less supernatural office? I don't know. Uh, but it is... Unfortunately, an unwritten faux pas, or faux, faux, I don't like French, humility that asserts church leaders should never defend themselves. If you're a really humble pastor, you'll, be, you'll keep your mouth quiet. I'm sorry, I think Paul's pride, I don't think Paul's prideful. Paul's not doing anything different than you ought to do with respect to the commandments of God. And when it comes to lying, the flip side of that is a good name, to preserve and defend a good name. You're a good name if need be. But you may not want to. I mean, on the flip side, Paul says, I don't want recompense. And sometimes Paul may not defend himself. And sometimes he doesn't do a lot of defending of himself at all. And so it depends on the circumstances. Third point, apostolic freedom asserted. So that's verse 12. We read of that earlier. If others partake of this right, this right of compensation, of proper recompense for my labors over you, how much more us? Nevertheless, we've not used this right. Halfway through. Nevertheless, we have not used this right. Verses 15 through 18, he refuses to take compensation, explains. But I have used none of these things, verse 15, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. I'm not giving this long-winded explanation that apparently you need to hear. We're seeing 2,000 years later. They obviously need to hear this. About the right of apostles and ministers in general, not just apostles who are super ministers, but church ministers, pastors, to be paid and compensated I'm not giving this as a backhanded way that you would give me more money, please. Right? That's what he's saying in verse 15. Paul has a right not to take the funds, but he also has a right to take them. And he's not writing uh, to take them in a backhanded way. And uh, thus he ends here when verses 15 and following, verse 16, 15b, an incomplete argument. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should... Make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Of necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. His boasting is probably the glory of being able to preach the gospel is what he's talking about. And then in verse 16, to avoid confusion, he points out his boasting is not strictly pride of himself, but the privilege and the honor and also the necessity urged upon him in his office to preach. He will preach whether he's paid or not. That's what he's saying. And here he's saying, I don't want to get paid, because I think it'll be a stumbling stone, an offense in his circumstances. Necessity is upon him to preach. And the reward, he says, yeah, I'm not taking material reward, although I could. Verse 11, I do spiritual sowing. What's the big deal about having material reaping? But it's enough for me that I preach the gospel. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ, the good news, right? That's what the word gospel means, the good news of Jesus and him crucified, chapter 1, where he went over that. That's his reward. It's sufficient, he says, in this case, for me. Ministers have a right to refuse payment, brothers and sisters, if they believe it will hinder their preaching. Uh, Certainly is the case, I think, uh, one obvious example uh, is... Hey, you know, someone's, we, we need somebody to preach at a commencement speech or something like that. 
Uh, it's never happened to me. Um, probably say, go ahead. We don't have any money. I don't care. You let me preach. I'll preach. You give me no restrictions. I'll be there. Because they'll want restrictions if they find out afterwards. But you ask them up front. No restrictions. Great. Because I presided over weddings over one family. I didn't really know them. It's a military family. I don't know how they got a hold of me. Maybe Luann. Yeah. And I did some counseling, and they're like, "Would you preside over my our, our wedding?" I said, "Sure, if you let me preach." Okay. And they got both barrels. It wasn't very long because it is a wedding; it's not a, a sermon per se. Uh, but they got uh, they got it there. And so, like Paul, I am compelled to preach when people give it to me, even if I don't get paid. That's a reward in itself, and I get to do my job. It's an honor before God. And so, ministers have a right to refuse payment if they believe it will hinder their preaching. It's a matter of circumstances and common sense. Not to be done lightly, or for signaling personal piety, I, I call it faux humility, right? This fake humility, oh, I'm never, no, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to refuse, or whatever the case is. But only for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, although I'm not going into the details here, I'm pretty much done. There should be obvious effects from your decision. I think Paul wouldn't do it if he saw no effects from him not taking payment. If he saw fruit from it, he's like, okay, it's working. If it's not working, he's going to stop. That's what I mean by circumstances. Nothing more complicated than that. Although you're not ministers, you have a similar right. By laying aside any freedom or right you have, chapter 8. We talked about that, chapter 8, offending the weaker brother. If the interest... The best interest is serve for Christ, your family, and your church. Not in a pie-in-the-sky change. It's, you know, I really hope, I think it's going to happen. It's this grandiose plan, and, and you know the odds are a thousand to one. That's not what I'm talking about. But if there are reasonable, pressing uh, chance and opportunities to change, I covered a little bit about uh, the opportunities when I covered chapter 8. So pray, brothers and sisters, for wisdom for yourself and especially for pastors in using this liberty for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. And so, God above, uh, we end this part of chapter 9, and uh, we pray and ask, Lord, that we could indeed been edified by the preaching and by your Spirit within us, Lord, to reexamine ourselves, to see what we are doing, Lord, if it's indeed helpful for one another. In your name we pray, amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 445, 445.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.